Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Chapter 5, Burkett Notes. This chapter and the two next following contain Christ's famous Sermon upon the Mount, which comprehends the sum and substance both of the Old and New Testament. Our Savior begins this, his sermon, with a declaration, who are blessed, including an exhortation to duty, and annexes a reward to the performance of that duty. By this sermon, the Christian world will be judged in the last day, and by the particulars of it, we must either stand or fall. Verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the preacher, he, that is Christ, the great prophet and teacher of his church. Observe, two, the place where he preached, upon a mountain, probably for convenience to himself and advantage to his auditors though some will have a mystery in it, that as the law at first was given on a mountain, so Christ would now explain it upon a mountain, or to show the sublimity of his doctrine and precepts. Observe three, the posture in which he preached, sitting, when he was set, he taught, according to the custom of the Jewish doctors who sat to show their authority. Observe four, the sermon itself, which begins with beatitudes and blessings, and is accompanied with promises of reward, not as the law was delivered on Mount Sinai, with threatenings and thunder, with fire and earthquake, but in a still and soft voice. Our Lord's lips are full of grace. They drop as the honeycomb. Blessings and promises are our encouragement to obedience. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Burkett notes, observe here, one, it is not said, blessed are the poor in a state, but blessed are the poor in spirit. Tis not a poverty of purse and possession, but a poverty of spirit that entitles us to the blessing. Tis not said, blessed are the spiritually poor, but blessed are the poor in spirit. He that is destitute of the grace and spirit of Christ has no sense of his spiritual wants. He is spiritually poor, but he is not poor in spirit. Further, three, tis not said, blessed are the poor spirited, but the poor in spirit, such as act below and beneath themselves as men and as Christians. These are poor spirited men, but these are not poor in spirit. Four, tis not said, blessed are they that make themselves poor by leaving their estates and callings and turning beggars as some do among the papists. But blessed are they whom the gospel makes poor by giving them a sight of their spiritual wants and necessities and directing them to Christ, that they may be made rich. In sum, not those that are poor in a state or those whom the world has made poor in possession, but those whom the gospel has made poor in spirit. That is, the truly humble, lowly spirits have a right and title to the kingdom of heaven. Now humility is called poverty of spirit because it is the effect and fruit of God's Spirit. Verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. That mourning for sin is a gospel duty. The law allows no place for repentance, though we seek it carefully with tears. Observe 2. The time and season for this duty. 
Blessed are they that now mourn. Sorrow for sin is physic on earth, but tis food in hell. Repentance is here a grace, but there a punishment. 3. As mourning goes before comfort, so comfort shall follow after mourning. Our godly sorrow for our own and others' sins shall end in everlasting joy and comfort. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the grace and duty recommended, meekness, the wages and rewards belonging to that grace and duty, the inheritance of the earth. Meekness either respects God or our neighbor. As it respects God, so it implies flexibleness to his commanding will and submissiveness to his providential pleasure. As it respects our neighbor, it consists in forgiving injuries, bearing reproaches, and recompensing good for evil. The reward and blessing ensured to this grace and duty is the inheritance of the earth. Where heaven is not excluded but included, yet the earth is mentioned to show that men will not be losers by their meekness as to their outward estates, for Almighty God will make good to them whatever they lose for peace's sake. O happy temper of mind that at once secures heaven and earth to boot, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth in this life and heaven in the next. Verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be fulfilled. Burkett notes. Observe 1. The character of the persons whom Christ pronounces blessed, such as hunger and thirst after righteousness. 2. Wherein their blessedness doth consist, they shall be filled. By righteousness we are to understand. 1. A righteousness of justification. The righteousness of the mediator imputed to us by which we stand righteous in God's sight, being freed from condemnation. 2. A righteousness of sanctification, wrought in us by the Holy Spirit, enabling us to act righteously. By the former, there is a relative change in our condition. By the latter, a real change in our constitution. 1. Learn that all and only such as do spiritually hunger and thirst after Christ and his righteousness are in a happy and blessed condition. 2 that to hunger and thirst after holiness is to apprehend the worth of it, to be sensible of the want of it, to be desirous of it, and restless in endeavors after it, as men usually do that are pinched with hunger. Dr. Hammond's Practical Catechism. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Burkett notes, Here our blessed Redeemer recommends to us a compassionate regard toward the miseries of others and that, both in soul and body, name and estate, to be forward to pity and pardon, to relieve and help, to give and forgive. And as an encouragement, he adds, that as we deal with others, God will deal with us. Our charity towards men should be crowned with mercy from God, and that in abundance too. For our riverlet of charity, we shall partake of an ocean of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Learn that the merciful man is a blessed man, and therefore blessed, because he shall obtain mercy when he most wants it and most desires it. Mercy, not wages. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Burkett notes. Note here, one, the duty required and called for, purity of heart and life. The first express, the other included. 
for a clean heart will be accompanied with a clean life. Where there is a principle of grace within, there will be the acting of grace without. Note 2. The incentive to this duty. The pure in heart and the holy in life shall see and enjoy God, the infinitely pure and perfectly holy God. They shall see him spiritually and immediately in this life, gloriously and immediately in the life to come. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Burkett notes. Observe 1. The connection between peace and purity. Purity of heart and peaceableness of life accompany one another. There is no inward purity where there is not an endeavor after outward peace. 2. The duty exhorted to. Namely, to love peace and to labor after peace. To love it ourselves and to promote it amongst others. To be not only peaceable, but peacemakers. 4. The title of honor that is here put upon such as are of the peaceable and peacemaking temper. They shall be called the children of God. That is, they shall be reputed and esteemed God's children for their likeness to him who is the God of peace. And they shall be dignified and honored with the privileges of God's children, namely grace here and glory hereafter. Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Burkett notes, Note here, one, that all the disciples and followers of Christ live they never so wholly and inoffensively in the world, yet must they expect suffering and persecution. Two, that the keenest and sharpest edge of persecution is usually turned against the ministers of Christ and falls heaviest on the prophets of God. Three, that such suffering and persecutions as will afford a man solid comfort and entitle him to real blessedness must be endured and undergone for righteousness' sake. Four, that it is the will and command of Christ that those which suffer for him and for righteousness' sake should not only be meek and patient, but joyous and cheerful. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. 5. That such a patient and cheerful suffering of persecution for Christ in this life shall certainly be rewarded with the glory and blessedness of the life that is to come. Great is your reward, etc. Verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, Wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Burkett notes, Our Savior compares Christians in general, and his ministers in particular, unto salt, for a double reason. First, because it is the nature of salt to preserve things from corruption and putrefaction, and to render them savory and pleasant. Thus are the ministers of the gospel to labor and endeavor, by the purity of their doctrine, to sweeten putrefying sinners, that they may become savory unto God and men, and may be kept from being fly-blown with error and false doctrine. Secondly, because salt has a piercing power in it, which subdues the whole lump and turns it into its own nature. Such a piercing power is there in the ministry of the word, that it subdues the whole man to the obedience of itself. 
as if Christ had said, Ye are to be preachers and patterns to the world. Ye are appointed by your pure doctrine and good conversation to purge the world from that corruption in which it lies. But if you lose either soundness of doctrine or the savor of a good conversation, you will be wholly useless as to these great ends and must expect to be cast off by me as unsavory salt is cast to the dunghill. Verses 14 through 16. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. Our Savior's doctrine. 2. The inference he draws from it by way of application. The doctrine delivered is this, that Christians in general and the ministers of the gospel in particular, are the light of the world. But how? Not originally, but derivatively. Not efficiently, but instrumentally. Christ himself is the light of the world by way of original. His ministers are lights by way of derivation and participation from him. Further, Christ teaches them in the end why he communicated light unto them, namely, to enlighten, direct, and quicken others. Even as a sun in the firmament, and a candle in the house, diffuses and disperses its light to all that are within reach of it, so should all Christians, and particularly Christ's ministers, by the light of life and doctrine, direct people in their way towards heaven. Observe, too, the inference which our Savior draws from the foregoing doctrine. Ye are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light so shine before men. Where note, one, that our good works must shine, not blaze, All vainglory and ostentation must be avoided in the good works we do. Two, although we must abound in good works that men may see them, yet not be seen of men. Three, that the glorifying of God and doing good to mankind must be the great end we propound in all the good works which we perform. Verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but fulfill. Burkett notes, Our Savior here informs his followers that he had no design to abrogate any part of the moral law or to loose mankind from the least measure of their duty, either towards God or man, but that he came to fulfill it. One, by yielding a personal obedience to it. Two, by giving a fuller and stricter interpretation of it than the Pharisees were wont to give. For they taught that the law did only reach the outward man and restrain outward actions. As if Christ had said, though I preach a more special doctrine than is contained even in the letter of the moral law, yet do not think that I came to destroy or dissolve the obligations of that law. For I came to fulfill the types and predictions of the prophets, and to give you the full sense and spiritual import of the moral law. Verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Burkett notes, Another reason is here given by our Savior why he had no intention to abrogate or abolish the law, as that is drawn from the duration and perpetuity, the unchangeableness and immutability of the law. Sooner shall heaven and earth be abolished than the authority and obligation of the moral law be dissolved. Learn one 
that the law of God is an eternal and unchangeable rule of life and manners, and is to stand in force as long as the world stands and the frame of heaven and earth endure. Learn, too, that Christianity is not contrary to the laws by which mankind had formerly been obliged. Christ commands nothing that the natural or moral law has forbidden, and forbids nothing that they had commanded, but has perfected the law, and has set it higher than any of the most studied doctors did think themselves formerly obliged by it. To suppose that Christ had added to the moral precepts of the first table is to suppose that he had added to perfection. For that required the Jew to love God with all his heart, soul, and strength, which is the same that Christ require of us Christians here. Nor has Christ added to the duties of the second table, since that requires us to love our neighbors as ourselves, which St. Paul tells us, Romans 13.9, is the fulfilling of the law. Verse 19. Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Burkett notes, To evidence yet further that the moral law is a perfect rule of life, our Savior tells his disciples that if any of them did, either by their doctrine or practice, make void one of the least of God's commands, either by allowing themselves in the omission of any known duty or in the commission of any known sin, they should never enter into the kingdom of God. Learn that such a professor of Christianity as allows himself in the least voluntary transgression, either of omission or commission, and encourages others by his example to do the like, is certainly in a state of damnation. Verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, a glorious prize or reward set before the Christian as attainable, namely, the kingdom of heaven. Observe, two, the means required in order to our obtaining the prize and laying hold of this reward. We must be holy and righteous persons. Heaven is the reward of righteousness, a reward conferred only upon righteous persons. Observe 3. Here is the special qualification of that righteousness expressed which will entitle us to heaven and salvation. It must be a righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisee. And that these three ways. 1. In its principle and motive, love to God and obedience to his command, not the applause and commendation of men. 2. Its aim and end. The Pharisees made themselves, their own credit and esteem, their worldly gain and interest, their ultimate end, and not God's glory their supreme aim. 3. In the manner of performance. The Pharisees' duty wanted that of purity and spirituality, which the law of God required. They had respect only to the outward action, without any regard to the inward intention, and to that purity of heart which God required. Question, in what things are we to exceed the scribes and Pharisees? Answer, in sincerity, or by being that within which we seem to be without. In simplicity, or having holy ends in our religious actions. In humility, or having low and humble thoughts of ourselves and our best performances. In charity, or having compassion on all distressed persons in universality of obedience to all commands.
learn that holiness of heart and righteousness of life, which God's law requires of us, is absolutely and indispensably necessary to salvation. <laughs>